welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. Good morning. Welcome along to Gateway this morning. Thrilled that you are gathering with us. Um, Over the last couple of weeks, I've been doing a series. I just started it two weeks ago. We've called it One God, uh, One Story, and uh, One People. And I, I began by talking about the power and purpose of stories. And I talked about the fact that the reality is all of us have a storied identity. We are built into and around and function out of the stories that we believe. Every, every culture has its stories, and those stories are inextricably linked to what we call worldview. Those stories help us to understand and, and make sense of questions like, who am I, what am I doing here? What's gone wrong with the world? How can it be fixed? What time is it? Where are we heading? So the stories that the culture tells are designed to help the people within that culture make sense of life as it happens round about them. We all believe in and act out of stories. Even people in our postmodern culture who say, you know, don't believe in big stories, people who tell big stories are just trying to control you, they're instruments of kind of imperialism, don't believe them. That, that is a big story. That's a way of relating to the world. So even when, you, even when you say, I don't do philosophy, it is a philosophy, okay? So the reality is we all believe in and act out of stories. That was part one. In part two, I talked about the Bible as essentially being a narrative. It is a big story. Uh, I want to begin this morning by a quote coming from a book entitled Living the Story by Paul Stevens and Michael Green, and it kind of sums up really what I was talking about last week. It says, there are some common things about stories. They have a beginning, a middle, and an end. They have a plot that takes the characters in them somewhere. The Bible is a story. It has a beginning, a middle, and an end. It's going somewhere. The Bible is a description of what God has been doing from the beginning of time, what he's doing now, and where it's all going. The Bible is a grand story that makes sense of all other stories. Within this grand stories, there are many smaller stories, tales of people who lived and their lives and the part they played in this greater meta-narrative. But essentially, the Bible points to one story, and that is God's great, all-consuming love for this world. The biblical story is also our story. It tells us who we are. It tells us about the God we're dealing with. It tells us about what it all means. It tells us what life is about. By looking at it, it helps us to make sense of our own life stories and where we fit in to this greater story of God. The grand story of God's beautiful purpose for creation and humankind gives us the beginning and the end of our own stories, as well as making sense of the muddled middle. So I talked about the Bible as a story. One of the things I said last week, drawing from a book called The Drama of Redemption, is that some people have seen this story as like a six-act play. Act one is creation. 
That's Genesis 1 and 2. Act 2 is what's gone wrong with the world. It's the fall, Genesis 3 through 11. Acts 3 is redemption initiated through the election of Israel, through the calling of that nation. Remember last week I told the story about when I was a school teacher, I would sometimes at the end of term, I'd pick a child and and I'd get that child up, I'd, I'd speak to them and I'd give them my resources, and I'd say, I want you to go down, and I want you to buy enough ice blocks for the whole of the class. So off they would go. In a sense, that's what election is. I was electing that child, choosing that child, not for some position of cozy favoritism, but as a means by which, hopefully, the rest of the kids in the class would be blessed. And that's exactly what God did with Abraham. The election of Israel isn't some position of cozy favoritism. It was that they were chosen, they were blessed, and and the purpose of that blessing would, would be that they would bless the whole of the earth. N.T. Wright talks about the fact that this rescuing choice of Israel was God's way of undoing the sin of Adam. So this is redemption initiated. Act 4 is the coming of the king. Redemption accomplished. We're now into Matthew and the Gospels. Act 5 is the mission of the one people. From Acts chapter 1 through to the book of Revelation chapter 20, the one people of God on mission, blessed to be a blessing. Act 6 is the return of the king and redemption accomplished. And this is Revelation 21 and 22. Now, last week, we broke into the story at Act 4, the role of Jesus in this unfolding story. And the reason I broke in at that point is it's at that point in the story for many people where the story gets broken up and becomes effectively a very different story than the one the Bible tells. I mentioned last week, say it again, that Jesus comes as the climax of the story thus far and the pivot of the story going forward. He doesn't come to initiate a different story. His coming is not a massive radical break in the one story. Sometimes people imagine that With the coming of Jesus, all of the Old Testament effectively becomes redundant. And that is reflected in the fact that so many Christians don't bother with reading the Old Testament. They think, oh, that's that's not who we are. You know, that's law, we're under grace, this is a new story. That isn't what the Bible says. Jesus came as the fulfillment of the story thus far and the pivot of the same story going forward. And we talked last week about Matthew as he begins the Gospels, how he hooks the story back by what we call a schematized genealogy. He tells a story by a genealogy and hooks it back into the Old Testament. And that's that's a classic Middle Eastern and Jewish way of saying, in order to understand the story that I'm about to tell you, you need to understand the backstory because this is the continuation of that story. And what I want to do this morning is continue down that same line. I I want to hammer home, if I'm able, the thought that Jesus, the Jesus part of the story, Act 4, is the continuation of a one story that's unfolding and not some kind of break in it, not some kind of completely new story. This is Act 4 in the continuing story, not Act 1 of a completely different story. 
When Jesus spoke about the scriptures, he never spoke about the Old Testament and the New Testament. That, that's something we've introduced, and I mentioned last week how it probably came as a result of a man by the name of Marcion, who was a second century heretic, who looked at the God of the Old Testament and couldn't see that Jesus and the God of the Old Testament were the same people. He thought the God of the Old Testament was somewhat capricious, a bit moody and, and cruel, and Jesus had to be different, so he broke the stories. Jesus never talked about the Old Testament. He talked about the scriptures. Now, some of you might say, but, but didn't he talk about the new covenant? Yes, he did, the new covenant in my blood. But in doing that, he's quoting Jeremiah and Ezekiel. He's hooking that even into the old story. Jesus was soaked in the story. He was soaked in the scriptures, the story to this point. And I think it's the story to this point that actually helped Jesus understand who he was. If I can put it this way, it was the Old Testament, the old part of the story that helped Jesus understand Jesus. Let me try and explain, because you could say, come on, Don, surely Jesus knew everything about who he was and what he was called to do. I mean, from the start, he was God, and of course he was. But he was also fully human as well, and he didn't go around as an omniscient toddler. The Bible tells us that he grew as any other human child would grow, physically, socially, spiritually. And he clearly grew up with an increased awareness of the very special relationship that he had with his father and with a growing awareness of his identity and his mission. We, we see that as a 12-year-old in the temple talking with the doctors of the law and astounding them with his incredibly perceptive observations and his profound answers to their questions. Jesus must have thought in profoundly and deeply about who he was and what he was called to do. And he would have reflected on those questions. Who am I? What am I called to do? In the light of the story thus far, in the light of the scriptures that he was soaked in. And it was in these scriptures, which are the record of the story so far, that he found such a rich tapestry of figures, of historical persons, of events, of prophetic pictures and symbols that all contributed to shape his own unique identity. Matthew moves from the early story, and we, we break in Matthew chapter 3 into the baptism of Jesus, the adult Jesus now. He comes for baptism, and as he goes into the waters of baptism, the Father speaks directly to him regarding this issue of his identity and, and says, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. These words that must have meant so much to Jesus at this critical juncture of his life weren't actually new words. This wasn't some fresh burst of hitherto unknown divine speech. This, this phrase, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, is drawn out of the story to this point. They are, th th that phrase at least is echoes of two and possibly three passages in the Old Testament. And Jesus, as well as his listeners, who were steeped and soaked in these texts, would have immediately recognized them and identified them in terms of all that that meant for Jesus' self-identity. 
Now, while the words weren't wholly new, the way these three passages are brought together and related to a single individual with a unique identity and mission was incredibly significant. So, the words, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. For a start, this is my son. That's an echo of Psalm 2 verse 7 where the psalmist says, I will declare the decree the Lord has said unto me, thou art my son. Today I have begotten thee. That psalm initially was a psalm about David and then the subsequent kings that were descendant from him. They were words that were probably spoken at the coronation or enthronement of David as a way of endorsing his legitimacy and his authority and each of the kings subsequent to David. When that line of Davidic kings ended with the fall of Jerusalem in 587 BC, that psalm was taken and given a future look. It was applied to the expected Messiah, the son of David, who would come and restore Israel from their exile. The father at this moment is identifying Jesus as that one. This is the seed of David, the son. Then it goes on, the second part, uh, my loved one in whom I delight. That is an echo from Isaiah 42 verse 1, which is the opening of a series of songs that Isaiah sings, as it were, called the servant songs. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. And as those words echo from the Father over Jesus' baptism, in the heads and hearts of people steeped in the story, they are recognizing where this comes from. The servant is introduced to us somewhat like a king, but as the songs that Isaiah sings develop and unfold, we clearly see that this servant will accomplish his calling, not by the exercise of kingly power, as we might expect, but through frustration, through suffering, through rejection, and ultimately even through death. And the father, in these words, at his son's baptizing, uh, bat Baptism is identifying Jesus as that servant of the Lord, the one that Isaiah sings about. Then the third echo out of this one phrase, my son, my beloved one, is an echo of Genesis chapter 22, verse 2, where God tells Abraham, take your son, your only son, whom you love. Take him up the mountain. Now, we all know that story. Isaac goes up the mountain with Abraham. Abraham is prepared and just about to sacrifice him when God steps in and, and Isaac is ultimately spared. Jesus is the son that ultimately wasn't. And Paul may well have had that story in mind when he wrote in Romans chapter 8, verse 32, who did not spare his own son. You have to understand, when, when we're reading the New Testament, it is largely written by, and in the early stages, being read by people who are soaked in this story. They, they understand the echoes in ways that many of us do not. And here, the father identifies Jesus as the son that he loves, but is willing to sacrifice for the salvation of the world. So at this crucial juncture of his life and ministry, Jesus um, receives divine confirmation and certainty about who he is 
and what he's come to do. And it was the story to this point that provided him with the shape of both his identity and his mission. Christopher Wright states this, his personal identity, the shape of his mission and the patterns of his life are all, so to speak, programmed by the intricate spiral patterns of a genetic code provided by the Old Testament scriptures. It's the story thus far. Jesus is not breaking that story. He's embedded in that story. He's the fulfillment of the story up to this point, and he becomes the pivot of that same story going forward. Jesus was not some new and exotic species totally unrelated to the story thus far, and was definitely not what most Westerners think, the radical break in the story providing a new religion, Christianity, a different religion from Judaism. Well, superficially, of course, there's some truth in that, but at a deeper level, this is the continuation of one story, as we'll see going forward. For those with eyes, ears, and memories, this is the continuation of a story told thus far. The story that has provided the patterns and the models by which Jesus could understand explain himself and his goals to other people. Every Jewish reader of the story of Jesus' baptism and the words that the Father spoke to him would resonate deeply with what they knew of the story thus far. You see, when the Father said, this is my beloved son, the people who are listening to this already knew that God had chosen a son, a corporate son, that Israel had been designated and elected as God's son. In Exodus chapter 4, verse 22, God says to Moses, you go and tell Pharaoh God's message, Israel is my son, my firstborn. In Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, when Israel was only a child, I loved him, I called out my son, and I called him out of Egypt. Jeremiah 31, 9, yes, it's because I am Israel's father, and Ephraim is my firstborn son. The people listening to Jesus's Baptismal words are immediately thinking, but Israel is God's son. And Israel was called as God's son. But what we see in the story, Act 3, is that Israel fails in their mission and calling to be a true son. They were elected out to bless to be a blessing. Like in the analogy of the child sent to buy the ice blocks, Israel picked up the ice blocks and instead of bringing them back to the classroom, they went round behind the back of the bike shed and ate the whole lot themselves. That's exactly what happened. They took God who was a God of the nations and they made him a nationalistic God who was all about them. And Isaiah laments, he says, heaven and earth, you're the jury, listen to God's case. I had children and raised them well, and they turned on me. The ox knows who's boss, the mule knows, who's, knows the hand that feeds them, but not Israel. My people don't know up from down. My son, and my son, my corporate son, failed in their mission. Now on the shoulders of Jesus, my beloved son, he lays the responsibility of being the true son that Israel could not be. He would succeed where Israel failed. He would submit where Israel rebelled. He would obey where Israel disobeyed. You know, it's fascinating, but when the gospel writers 
right about Jesus having his identity secured by words spoken from heaven at his baptism, then immediately being taken out in the wilderness. Matthew goes on after the baptism to say Jesus is driven out into the wilderness where he is tempted for 40 days. Listen, the people who are seeing this, reading this, remember they're soaked in the story. They are immediately making a parallel between another people who had their identity secured by words that were spoken from heaven and then went out in the wilderness to be tested. At Mount Sinai, after liberation from Egypt, God speaks to this people and he says, you will be my treasured possession among the peoples for all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Their identity and mission is secured in the words that God speaks. Immediately they are taken out into the wilderness where they are tested. And you know the story of Numbers and Deuteronomy. They fail miserably, repeatedly and a whole generation of them perishes in the wilderness after 40 years. 40 years, 40 days, wilderness, wilderness. These people are immediately making connections in a story that for the most part goes completely over our head. When God spoke to Israel, the sonship that he conferred on them was a missional concept. He said, I've called you elected you a rescuing choice through you, through Abraham and his subsequent family, Israel, I will undo the sin of Adam. I will bless you and make you a blessing. A missional concept. If Israel would live by God's standards, if they would obey his laws, then God could, through them, pursue his goal of blessing to the nations. He could bring as Hebrews says, many sons to glory through the one son and the election of that one son. The incredible challenge for Israel is that between election and the ultimate goal of mission stands ethical obedience. They have to be a kind of people. And between election and God's purposes is always ethical obedience. It hasn't changed for you and I. And we see Israel failing miserably. They couldn't and didn't embrace their identity and their mission. Now here we are at the beginning of Act 4, and here stands Jesus. And you can sense something of the awesome responsibility that sits on his shoulder as he faces up to the task of being God's true son, of being the true Israelite, through whom God will actually be able to bless the world. As the representation and embodiment of all that Israel was meant to be and couldn't be, Jesus, as God's true son, does what Israel couldn't and didn't. Christ's obedient sonship fulfilled the mission that Israel's sonship prepared them for, but they failed through disobedience. It's all part of the story. It's not a different story. Actually, as you look into the life of Jesus, you see how deeply embedded in the story he is. Sometimes I hear, and I'm sure you've heard it said too, I hear people say something to the effect that Jesus did away with the law. He swept away all that Jewish stuff, and he started a new story. 
Oh, I'm sorry, but that's not what the Bible says. Listen to this, Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Jesus speaking, think not that I'm come to destroy the law. I didn't come to sweep the law away. All the prophets, I am come not to destroy, but to fulfill. Listen to the message translation. Don't suppose for a minute that I've come to demolish the scriptures, either God's law or the prophets. I'm not here to demolish, but to complete. I'm going to put it all together, pull it all together in a vast panorama. Now, I think what happens is the point of confusion for many results in an incredibly simplistic and, in my view, mistaken idea that the Old Testament was all about law. The Torah, that we sometimes call it, means that Israel had to work for their salvation. It it was all about law. The Old Testament was law. The New Testament is grace. Therefore, ipso facto, since we're under grace, we have to be in a different story. The very first thing in terms of like unpacking that and saying, you know, so many people in the church believe that is, is looking for a context in terms of why the law was given, where the law was given, what the law was meant to do. So when you go back in the story and say, if the law was what people think it was, is that what it was meant to be? It was, you know, Israel working for their salvation, and since we don't long, no longer work for our salvation, that must be a completely different story. Go back to where the law was given, and you'll see something that's quite profound. Before the giving of the law in Exodus chapter 20, there's already been a book and a half of narrative in the story. You've got Genesis and the first 20 chapters of Exodus. As we saw last week in Genesis 12, God elects and calls Abraham. And this is the story of God's relationship, firstly with this man, and then secondly, with his family and with his seed. It's the story of blessing, of protection, of promise, of fulfillment, and it reaches, as it were, its climax in this incredible liberation of the people out of slavery in Exodus. The story up to this point has been a story of grace. The grace of God that chose Abraham. The grace of God that reaches down to liberate a people who did not deserve liberation. Before God gave Torah, before God gave the law, he first gave himself as a redeemer to this people. So in Exodus chapter 19, verse 4 and 5, he says to them, You've seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to me. If you'll listen obediently to what I say, keep my covenant. Out of all peoples, you'll be my special treasure. The whole earth is mine to choose from, but you are special, a kingdom of priests a holy nation. God acts in incredible grace and faithfulness, and he redeems this people. Then he gives the law at Sinai. The law was given in a context of an already established redemptive relationship given by grace. So you've got grace, and then ultimately you've got the law. The law was never given to Israel as a means of, you obey this, you get saved. He'd already saved them. 
He didn't give that to them as a means of achieving salvation, but rather as guidance for responding to a salvation they had already received and learning how to live in the pleasure of the God that had shown them grace. Obedience flowed from grace. It didn't buy it. Obedience was the response to grace, not the reason for it. Obedience was the fruit and proof of an already established relationship. Obedience to God flowed from gratitude for the grace that he'd shown them. You know what? This story is a story of grace from beginning to end. To say, as many do in evangelical circles, law in the Old Testament Grace in the New Testament, therefore different stories, in my view, is simplistic and mistaken. And the New Testament text, we love him because he first loved us. While it is a New Testament text, nevertheless, it echoes the heartbeat of Old Testament ethics as well. When you look at the heart of the law... Now, now, most people, when they think of the law, they tend to think of the superficial, what, what theologians, theologians sometimes call the cultic, ceremonial, or symbolic details. They think of animal sacrifices. They think of food laws. They think of, um, you know, don't plow your field with a, with a, with a mule. And don't, don't mix a mule with, a, with an ox. Don't, don't um, mix up different kinds of garment, you know, threads in your garments. We tend to think of the law in those outward superficial details. But the outward aspects, which in the story, as Hebrews tells us, do get altered and changed, the, underneath those superficial aspects is the heart and substructure of the law. And the heart of the law isn't a different discarded story. Jesus said, don't think I've come to throw all that stuff away. I've come to fulfill it. And when you come into the New Testament, it doesn't talk about the law doesn't affect us anymore. It says the law, which is holy, just, true, and good, is now fulfilled in us by the power of the Spirit. We, we actually live out the substructure of the law, not by our perspiring efforts, but by the power of the Holy Spirit in us. It's the same story. Listen to the substructure of the law. Firstly, as I noted, it's a response to grace. It's not the way we earn grace, but out of grace we live in obedience. Secondly, the essential commands of the law are to put God in first place in our lives. When, when the words are given, the first few commands of the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, are love God with all your heart, worship only Him, no idols. This is about God in first place. Next, we see the law in its various commands is trying to teach the people that people matter more than things. You, you look at the law, that's what it's about. People matter more than things. Love your neighbor as yourself is not a revolutionary new love ethic initiated by Jesus. It was the fundamental ethical demand of the law. You can see it in Leviticus chapter 19. You shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. So when you start to put away the outward symbolic things and look at the substructure of the law, you see it's 
grace. It's gratitude for what God has done. It's putting God in first place. It's recognizing that people are more important than things. It's an invitation to be shaped into the character of what God is like. That's why in Leviticus again and again it says, be holy even as God is holy. It's an invitation to people saying, you must be a different kind of people because I am a different kind of God. And I'll tell you something else about the law. The law was for people's good. It was designed to bless people. Read Deuteronomy chapter 24, uh, 6, 24, 10, 13. It says, the Lord commanded us to do these things, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. Grace, gratitude, obedience flowing out of that, putting God first, loving your neighbor, being created in the image of God. You, ask, you, you tell me, is that a different story than the story you find yourself in? I don't think so. That's exactly what Jesus was getting at when he said, I've come to fulfill that. And then through me and my people, empowered by the Spirit, we will live out of that ethic. We will live and fulfill the law. Now, Jesus did undo layers of no doubt well-meaning, but foggy regulations that really did bury the meaning of the law. By the time of Jesus, the law had been lost, as is wont by people even today when they concentrate on the outward aspects of religion and they lose the deep inner things that those outward things are supposed to reflect. By the time Jesus came, for example, the Sabbath which was a remarkable, remarkable command. Nowhere in all the Middle Eastern world at this time were workers given a day off, a day to enjoy themselves, to spend with their families, to celebrate, to love God. That that was unheard of in this time of the world. Harold Macmillan, a former British prime minister, once commented that the Old Testament Sabbath law was the greatest piece of workers' protection legislation in history. This is given for the good of people. Now, by the time Jesus comes along, it had had become burdensome. You know, the the people, you know, had been given lists of things that they weren't allowed to do. And, And effectively, Jesus had to clear that. He wasn't doing away with the law. He was bringing the true law back into focus, as it were. The problem wasn't the law. It was the people's response to the law. And Peter, uh, sorry, Paul was later to say exactly the same thing. What I'm trying to say, the point that I'm trying to make, and I've been laboring over it, but I, I, I do so because I think so many people get this part of the story wrong, is that Jesus' life and message are embedded in and are a reflection of a story thus far. And he doesn't radically break that story. And if we want to understand the story, we really do have to be embedded and soaked in it as well. We have to know something of the Old Testament because it tells us how the story started, what we're called to do and be in the story, why, and why the world went wrong, how it got fixed, and the role we play in the story going forward. We do not see a radical break in the story. Now, Jesus was radical in, this, in, in one particular sense, and, and it's this, that 
He came along and he acknowledged the law, but he said, I take precedence over the law. In fact, I am the fulfillment of the law. He didn't renounce the law in terms of its inherent values and priorities. He said, I come to fulfill it. But he then went on and said, it is in and through my person that the destination that the law points to can be reached. And he made a response to his teaching and his person, the determinative point where in the past it had rested on their response to the law. You know when Jesus told the story of the two houses, the one built on rock and the one built on sand, at the end of that story, everybody in the crowd would have been expecting him to say, the man who built his house on the rock is the man who adhered to the law. And he didn't. He said, the man who built his house on the rock is the one who hears my teaching and obeys. And there would have been a corporate gasp in his audience. (sighs) What? We all know it's Torah. You have to respond to Torah. In that moment, Jesus is saying, I am the fulfillment of all of that. That points to me. Later on, when he says, Take my yoke upon me. Now, we all love that passage, and we all think, oh, yeah, because you know, it's easy and it's light and ah, so lovely. People at that time wouldn't have thought that. They would have gasped in astonishment when he said, take my yoke upon you. Because that phrase was always used in terms of a person coming under the, the law. You take on you the yoke of the law. A, a young man at his bar mitzvah would would take on himself the yoke of the law. And he was now a son under the law. So Jesus comes along and says, take my yoke upon me, upon you, rather. And and as I said, people would be going, who the flipping heck does he think he is? What? That's the role of Torah. Jesus is saying, Torah pointed to me. The inherent values and priorities of Torah, I am not wiping away. In my person, I have fulfilled them. But I'm telling you, Torah was a signpost and it pointed to me. It's fulfilled in me. Paul was later to say exactly the same thing. The law pointed in the right direction, but it couldn't take you where it was pointing because of the weakness of your flesh. But now, he says... Having been encountered by Messiah, his death and resurrection, having been empowered by the Spirit, we now fulfill the law in the power of the Spirit. It's not a different story. It's the fulfillment of the one story. By the way, that's why the Pharisees wanted Jesus dead. He was not just an interesting teacher of the law. If he'd been that, they might have considered him an original thinker. There might have been a school of interpretation that was named after him. He set himself up as greater than the law, as the destination that the law was pointing to. The law, in effect, was a signpost. He was the real destination. And in doing that, he threatened the whole existing system. And there was only one way of dealing with that, and it was not polite rabbinical counterarguments. It was to kill him. So Jesus does not break the story and start a new one. He is both the climax of the story thus far and the pivot on which the rest of the story will hinge and turn. And you see the early church and the the theology that they begin to develop as they reflect on who Jesus was and who the Holy Spirit was. 
in the light of his death and resurrection, they began to see things in terms of the story thus far, and they saw Jesus as the fulfillment of it all. And Paul says this, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, nearly finished, by the way. All the promises of God find their yes in him. This is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God and to his glory. We Westerners, now, I, I love the song that we sing, oh, you know, the promises of God are yes and amen. We, we sing this wonderful song. But the way we apply that is Jesus is yes to the promises he's given me. All of the promises that he's given you, Jesus will be the yes and amen, and he will fill those promises in your life. And in classic Western style, we make it about numero uno, me. That, that's true to a point, but that's not the point of this. The promises that Paul is talking about here, he's the yes and amen to all of them. They're the promises of the story. They are the promise to Abraham that he will have a seed that will bless the whole world. They are the promise to David that he will have a son that will inaugurate the, 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 the new messianic kingdom. They are the promise after promise after promise that a Messiah will come. And Paul's saying they all focused on Jesus. They all found their yes and amen in him. He's the pivot of the story. And as the early church are reflecting on this, they don't reject the story. They say, he's it. He's the fulfillment of the story, and therefore he becomes the hinge pivot on which the whole of the rest of the story hangs. To the early Christians, they saw clearly that he was the singular seed of Abraham through whom the whole world would be blessed. They saw him as the one who would bring the new exodus to God's people. When God's people were in slavery and bondage, the exodus happened. They, they still, the, the Jews of Jesus' time, still saw themselves in exile. They were under the rule of the Romans. They were looking for a new exodus. And, and Paul comes along and says, he's the Passover lamb slain for you. And he taps into that story and says, you want a new exodus? It happens in him. It's his death and resurrection that achieves the new exodus. He's the one who will mediate the new covenant promises of Jeremiah and Ezekiel that God will do such a work in the hearts of people that their hearts of stone will become hearts of flesh and he'll pour out his spirit on people. He was the new temple, not made with hands, the place where heaven and earth would touch the place where sacrifice for sin could be made and where people could be reconciled with God. He's the temple. He's the promised son of David who would inaugurate the new messianic kingdom of God. He's Mount Zion, the place of God's presence. He's the one in whom we now have an inheritance greater than Israel in the Old Testament, greater than their land, greater than all of the other things that were promised them an inheritance that can't be lost or stolen. So what we have here is not a break in the story, but it's climax. And what flows from this point in terms of the continuation of the story will ultimately be the consummation of the same story. And you and I are narrated into this story. You say, Don, you know when you started this series, you said it was going to be really controversial. Up to this point, there's not been a lot of controversy. Okay, I get the break in the story, and, I, and I, I, the thing on the law, yeah, I didn't see that. I, but, but it hasn't exactly been controversial. Where it gets really fun is from here on in. <laughs> Truly, because one God, 
One story, one people. Who are the people of God? Who are Abraham's seed? What are the promises? Where does national, ethnic Israel fit in that? See, a lot of you are incredibly passionate about the people of Israel, the national nation of Israel. You're you're invested in the fact that, you know, their reconstitution as a nation is an end-time sign that supernaturally they have been brought back to their land. They deserve that land. It's theirs by way of promise. And the Palestinians and the rest of the Arab nations, while we wouldn't necessarily say this out loud, they can go take a running jump. God promised this land to that people. I I want to explore, does the New Testament say that? Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.